Well, we are at the very end of John chapter 20. And two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus's post-resurrection encounter with the disciples that resulted in Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, which also by John's design is the highest confession in his gospel. In fact, it's the highest confession anyone can make about Jesus. And John's gospel builds to that moment in Thomas's confession, then serves really as the climax of the book. So this week we're looking at just two, just two short verses in light of all that has come before them, maybe especially given Thomas's confession of Jesus, that give the purpose of John's writing. That is, what's the point? Why give this account about Jesus? What does John want for us, really from us? Well, we're John chapter 20, beginning in verse 31. Let me read for us. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gospel the account about Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, who is Lord and King over all things and over all creation. And Lord Jesus, we pray that in this time we might commune with you, that through your spirit we may have eyes to see and ears to hear, that our hearts would be shaped to you, whether we see it now or not, or whether we feel anything now or not. We trust that you use things just like what we're doing now to shape us to yourself. And so we pray that you would make good on the promise that you do that very thing. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus, through your spirit. Amen. Well, in verse 30, John tells us that that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And at the very end of the gospel, at the very end of the book, in 2115, he says something similar. He writes, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So when John says signs here, he has in mind those actions or events that point to Jesus as the Messiah. And it's really the second part of John's gospel, what what scholars often call the book of signs, which is basically John chapter 2 through John chapter 12, that helps explain what John means by that word, signs. In that big second section of the book, you get, it's all structured around seven key events. First, the changing of water into wine at Cana, that's John 2. Second, healing the royal official son in Capernaum, that's John 4. Third, healing the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, that's John 5. Fourth, feeding the 5,000. That's John 6. Fifth, Jesus walking on water. That's John uh, 6 as well. Sixth, you have healing of the man born blind. That's John 9. And then seventh, the resurrection of Lazarus, which is John 11. And John's point is that these were signs. All of them were signs that pointed to the reality that Jesus is the Christ, whose kingdom was breaking into the world and who was in turn bringing new creation with him. So when you hear that word sign, 
think of it like a big red stop sign, right? These events were tangible and real signs that Israel was supposed to be able to read and interpret and understand and see that God was acting in a mighty way through Jesus in order to fulfill all his promises of new life through Jesus. And in turn, Israel, they're supposed to respond to it. So like a big red stop sign, you're supposed to act. You're supposed to see, interpret, and act. And that's what repentance is, by the way. It's to turn and to respond to what God has done and is doing in your life. So John is purposeful. He's intentional in crafting his account of Jesus's ministry with seven signs, like the seven days of creation that build and build to Lazarus's resurrection, which of course is the ultimate hope for us. Resurrection, you see, is not merely life after death. That's the way a lot of Christians think about it, that you just die and go to heaven. No, it's, it's all, it's life together and communion with God in a redeemed and glorified world. It's why all the miracles in the Gospels entail restoration and redemption of the body, as well as the soul and the mind and the heart. And they all include in one form or fashion the forgiveness of sins. All those things go together. It's also why, for example, uh, humans can't help but dream of utopia. Either like how some of the major religions, say Hinduism or Buddhism, dream of a, a disembodied heaven away from the earth where we just escape this world. Or like with modern secular ideologies that dream of making heaven on earth in our own image. That's heavy in America right now. The Bible's hope is very different. It's very different. God comes to the world. We don't go to him. God comes to the world and he redeems this world and our place in it with him. Otherwise, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How can that in any sense be a good thing? The blessing assumes both a resurrected humanity, every last bit of you, and a redeemed and glorified creation for us to live in together with God. It's really the hope is Eden 2.0, and you see that clearly pictured in Revelation 21 and 22. So John's account builds through these seven signs. Again, like the seven days of creation. Then he changes gears with the upper room discourse, which, which finds its climax with Jesus' death and resurrection, which is the implied eighth sign. And Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, which is the exact right response to Jesus. So John's point is that he could have written a whole lot more. He could have written a whole lot more, certainly more than seven signs. There were many other things, many other miracles, many other events that Jesus performs and the disciples witnessed. And not just the disciples that were proof that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And John intentionally crafted his gospel around seven events that's supposed to get your attention, giving us a theological account of Jesus' life so that we could clearly see the meaning of those events. Now, some of the other gospels highlight the same or similar events. Some highlight different ones altogether. So for example, John does not include the Sermon on the Mount, and that's a huge, important teaching. 
He doesn't include the Sermon on the Mount, but, but none of the other Gospels include the wedding at Cana. Luke includes both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plains, which are two similar teaching events that happened at two different places at two different times, whereas Matthew only includes the Sermon on the Mount. And what a lot of Christians are unaware of is that Jesus taught a whole lot more than what you see in the Gospels. Three years worth of, of ministry and teaching. So chances are he preached hundreds of times sermons just like the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plains. Each gospel you see is a unique, historical, and true account of Jesus' life, even as they each highlight different things about the same Lord Jesus Christ. With, with each author, in turn, they, they each make decisions about what to include or not include as part of their each individual account. And that's not weird or unusual. Historians do that all the time. I mean, think about it. We do this every single time we recount a story. Nobody wants to hear a story where we go minute by minute of the event. No, we recount the highlights or the important points for understanding the meaning of what happened. And it makes sense. You know, Jesus uh, was far more complex than any one account can say about him. And even, and even then, no account can capture everything, let alone four accounts capture everything. He was just, it's too big. It's too big. That's why he ends his gospel by saying, I don't think all the books in the world could contain what we have witnessed. So what we have in Scripture then, it's not an exhaustive account of all the details or every single moment of every single day that happened. But, but it is a true and accurate account of both what happened and what those things mean. So John could have written a whole lot more, a whole lot more. But what he has written is sufficient for believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to have life in his name. So let's talk about what that means for the role of Scripture in our life and what it does not mean. So what it means is that these texts, and we, we call, commonly call them Scripture or, or the Bible, and the Bible just comes from the word biblos, which just means the book. Uh, these are divinely inspired texts through which the Spirit speaks, and they are enough to bring a person to faith and repentance and in turn radically change his or her life. And we don't need anything else to do that. We don't need anything else to do that. There is no other evidence, no other proof, no other standard we need than Scripture itself. Now, are other pieces of evidence helpful or useful? Yes, of, of course they are. I, I use all kinds of studies or disciplines or insights all the time, all the time. But only God speaking through his word and the power of the spirit brings people to faith and repentance. It's why everything we do in this church is centered on the triune God and the means of grace he's given to us in his word, the sacraments and prayer. So, for example, when I speak to unbelievers and this doesn't happen all that much anymore, but when they are adamant that scripture must measure up to science or archeology span or whatever, I don't insist that, oh, the Bible does. The Bible does measure up to science or whatever the prevailing wisdom of the age is. I don't make that move at all. I used to, but I don't make that move at all. I refuse, you see, to concede the field to philosophy or science or whatever, and I certainly refuse to play by their rules, which is, of course, 
what they want the Bible to do is play by their rules. You see, if the Bible has to conform to some human standard of rationality or proof, then it is subservient to it, which is the move that has been made against the Bible for the last 400 years in Western culture. And it's probably what you feel most acutely when people attack the Bible. Is the Bible reasonable? Yes. Is the Bible historical? Yes. Is it trustworthy and true? Yes. Can you deny it? Yes. But it does not find its meaning or its value or truthfulness according to one particular cultural standard that came out of Western Europe in the 18th century that happens to be really good at making tools and explaining cyclical or repeatable natural phenomena. You know, as I mentioned two weeks ago, as helpful as science is, and I think it is, trying to explain historical one-time events by way of science would be like trying to describe a fourth-down conversion attempt by way of a set play on a corner kick in the 90th minute. You follow? Science has its uses, but those uses are pretty limited, and it certainly is not the measure of whether Scripture is true or not. You see, Scripture is both necessary and sufficient. You have to have Scripture, and you don't need anything more than Scripture to bring even the most hardened of hearts, the angriest and vilest of people, to faith. And it is also necessary and sufficient to grow us in Christ, too. Just this last week, it was a complete shock. I was listening to this interview with what I assume is an atheist, a scientist, interviewing a former, former KGB agent who had been in embedded America and didn't get his cover blown for like 10 or 12 years, which means he was an incredible KGB uh, operative in the United States. And as this interview is going along and you're hearing all this stuff, towards the end of it, he says, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian and my life completely changed. If an ex-KGB officer who was waging war against the United States can come to faith, anybody can. Anybody can. God still speaks and works through these texts. In fact, the Spirit delights in using them. It's kind of like what Jared Wilson recently commented. He said, the bottom line of all our excuses for not reading the Bible is a functional disbelief that God actually speaks in it. I might add, this is the same excuse used for not attending worship on the regular, not being in the life of the church on the regular, and so forth. If we truly believed the Creator God who ordains and sustains all things wrote the book, that is, the Bible, you couldn't keep us away from it. So John is telling us then in this account, take heart. His gospel is not only a true witness about the Son of God and what he has done and what it means. You know, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. This really and truly is one of the primary and foundational means that God uses to commune with us and to build us up in him. Now, what John does not mean with Scripture is that because of its authority and primacy, In bringing people to faith, it does not mean that in turn, Scripture speaks to every single issue or everything there is to speak about. So, for example, the Bible is not a scientific text. To read it that way is not only to give in to science's ridiculous claim to be the measure of truth. 
is to commit the fallacy of presentism. That is, it's reading our cultural assumptions or modern ideas or concepts back into an ancient text as if they had the same kinds of thoughts and ideas thousands of years ago as we do today. Moses was not a scientist. It's like how in the late 90s and in early 2000s, a whole cottage industry was built, built up around just one verse. First Chronicles 4.10. Those of you over the age of 35 probably remember it. I'll re- as soon as I, I'm going to say one word of it and you'll, you'll remember. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. That text does not mean what people 20-something years ago thought it meant. They were reading modern American individualistic lusts for comfort and security and material goods and peace of mind into an ancient text that would see such concerns as foreign and weird and idolatrous. So the Bible... It's not a scientific text any more than it teaches modern ideologies or modern politics or anything other than what it teaches. So you won't find capitalism or communism or wokeism or Christian nationalism or any other modern ism in it. Even so, does it have something to say to us as Christians and how we approach things like science or wealth or politics? Yes. So, for example, one of the criticisms that comes up about the New Testament is that it did not address issues of abortion in the ancient world. It was pretty common in major cities, for example, for unwanted children to basically be left at the garbage dump. And so they were either left to die or often, if you were a female, you were probably taken into slavery. Why doesn't the Bible address that? That's the criticism. What you see happening is, no, the Bible does not directly address that particular issue. But what you see Christians doing very early on is taking what the Bible teaches and applying it. And guess what they started doing? They started showing up at garbage dumps and saying, I will take this child. That's what's in view. So does, does the Bible directly address things like science or wealth or politics? No, but does it have things to say about how we do? Yes. So think about it this way. A whole lot of bad science could have been avoided if scientists began with the confession in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So scripture does not give instructions on how to do long division or how to set up for a fourth down conversion with short yardage. But it does give the foundational assumptions about God the world and our place in it and how he wants us to live in light of him, which does tell us what kind of scientist or athlete or politician God would have us to be. So scripture is both necessary and sufficient for faith and repentance. And John says that it's not mere belief in itself. It's not mere intellectual recognition that there is a God or there's an afterlife, or whatever counts as religious in America today. So just like believing there's a moon is good, but doesn't really change much about your life, so merely believing in the existence of Jesus or intellectually assenting to the truthfulness of his claims 
don't get you very much. They don't get you very much. So, for example, I believed in the truthfulness of the claim, cigarettes are bad for your health as a smoker. It is very easy to believe something is true and not act on it. I do it all the time. John's point is that if you claim, as Thomas rightly did, that Jesus is Lord and God, that confession has real consequences for every aspect of your life. So, for example, I recently finished watching season one of the Apple TV show Severance. And I, I'm not going to do any spoiler alerts. I, and I, I, I can't actually describe the show succinctly without giving away every conceit. But I can tell you about one character and one scene. The guy's name is Dylan, and when we first meet Dylan, he is completely invested in his work and has made work uh, his whole world. And he's a pretty cynical guy. He's pretty fearful, feels often threatened by outsiders, particularly people outside his department. But in an unexpected moment, Dylan finds out he has a son. And he had no idea he had a son, and what's more, The son knows him and loves him. Now, he could have just as easily thought, cool, I got a son. And then just kept on living in the same way. But he doesn't. He doesn't. This new knowledge changes everything. And he becomes bolder, more willing to take chances, more willing to sacrifice for his friends, more willing to let go of his previous conceptions of, uh, you know, his world in order to get to his son. So John doesn't merely give us his account with the hope that that we will nod in agreement and then just keep on living in the same ways. No, like Dylan, he expects this news will change, that it will change us. He wants us to see that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has brought new creation with him and that we are included in that. It's like what Irenaeus once commented. He said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Let me say that again. The glory of God is man fully alive. Now, he, of course, had in mind Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. If you want to take in God's glory, and this is John's point, if you want to take in God's glory, Look no further than to Jesus because Jesus is the fully alive man who is completely in tune with the Father and lives for him. But here's the crazy, really the insane thing about the gospel. Jesus wants to give you this glory too. He wants to give you this same life and his Father too. So he's inviting you into his life, inviting you to receive his spirit, to breathe him in and walk as new creations in this present darkness as lights in the world that are awaiting the resurrection. This is why Paul uses the language he does, why he talks about us as new creations or as citizens of heaven or as having new life or as John says in 1 John, that we are to be agents of light and agents of love. Now, when you hear that, don't think of this as as a new moralism. It isn't. It isn't a checklist of rights and wrongs. If, if you haven't noticed, you know, post-Christian America is loaded down with rules and moralisms. It's, America is a new legalism par excellence. 
And it's just got this strange new kind of political purity culture, which you can see on both the right and the left. That's not what Jesus is after. No, this is an invitation into God's own life where we have a fundamentally different relationship to the world and to each other where we are fully alive to God as he created us to be. It's like how Bishop Robert Barron recently described it. He said close to where he lives in Santa Barbara, there's a, a stretch of beach where people are allowed to bring their pets. And so it's pretty common to see owners with their dogs throwing tennis balls out into the surf and the dogs just in sheer delight chasing the ball and bringing it back to their owners. And they do this over and over again. That dog is alive in the world. It loves the beach and the surf. It doesn't want to be anywhere else or to be anything else. And what gives it joy where it feels the greatest pleasure is with its owner. It's not merely being in the world. It's being in the world engaged with this activity with his owner. And what really makes his tail wag, what he delights in, is obeying his owner and following him wherever he leads. It's one of the most annoying things about my dog I have. I go outside and he follows me everywhere. Everywhere I go, he's there. That says more about my heart probably than anything else. But that he wants to be where his master is, I think is very instructive. You know, and it's not the mere obedience in itself that gives him pleasure. It's the owner. It's the owner. He wants to serve his owner because he knows the owner loves him and he loves his owner. And the owner, in turn, is giving him something to do that actually hits at everything the dog was created to do and be. How much more so the creator God who made us in his image, who delights in us and pursued us through death itself. Now, we are obviously far more complicated than a dog. But you get the picture. This is why the shorter catechism begins with, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, Jesus is the glory of God as the fully alive man. He is the true Adam whose heart is fully set on God. And he loves, I want you to think about this. He loves to pursue his father's will. Just go read through the gospels and he says it over and over again. I'm here to do my father's will. I love my father. I can't wait to do it. And he has in turn restored us to this same life and he's freely given it to us. Now, if the picture of a dog enjoying a game of fetch with his owner is an unappealing picture, if the idea of life with God and serving him sounds a little distasteful, if you're thinking maybe it's better to rule in hell than be a servant in heaven, or maybe you're thinking, I'd rather be the one throwing the ball and God go chase it, I totally understand where you're coming from. Totally understand. That lie comes straight from the pit of hell, from Satan himself, and I struggle with it every single day. There's not a day in which I'm not tempted to pursue my own glory and do whatever I think will give me joy. And that's what most Americans are trying to do. 
including many Christians. And, you know, last I checked, as a culture, we don't seem very joyful. No, the very opposite of that is true. Ironically, even as dogs have an all-time high approval rating, we look at a dog's life and say, that looks awful. Think about that. Most Americans love dogs, even as the idea of loving like a dog sounds insulting and ridiculous. So the issue, perhaps, then, as G.K. Chesterton summarized it, is this. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. See, it's difficult to look past the lie. It's difficult to deny yourself. It's difficult to be defined by this God. But he has promised to make us fully alive humans, united to his son through the power of the spirit. And he is unbelievably patient with us in bringing us to that fully alive life. There is, there can be, Real joy in this life, as hard as this life is, there can be real joy, but it's found in him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you're so good, and your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the obedience of Christ who did it completely out of love and who has in turn given us freely this life that we might commune with you through him and the spirit. May you continue to work this in us, we pray. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.